Welcome to Rock Content's Jam Session podcast series. In each episode, we sit down and talk with industry experts who share proven marketing strategies, best practices for content, tactical advice, and tales of SaaS and entrepreneurship, and so much more. Enjoy today's episode. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you may be joining us from. Uh, my name is Giuseppe Caltabiano. I'm leading brand, lead gen, and product marketing here at Rock Content. And today is my pleasure to host this jam session. Today we have Andrew Raskin with us, one of the minds behind the strategic narrative approach. But before I will go with the first questions, let me spend just one minute to, to remind you what the goal of the jam session is. Our jam sessions are a mix of presentation, interviews like exactly the one we have today, and product-related webinars. They are hosted by us here at Rock Content, and they feature top marketers and SaaS experts and innovators. And basically we do all of this with one common theme, which is uh, providing advice and share trends and best practice on how to master successful storytelling and premium content experiences. And today we have definitely one of um, those top innovators. Now, let me tell you the story. I, I first came across Andy uh, when he wrote a few years ago, a very famous article. I think the title was the greatest sales deck I ever seen which got a very considerable amount of views. That article, of course, brought Andy and his job to my attention, but not just my attention, I think quite a lot of other folks in the industry. Um, I've never personally met Andy. I'm here stuck in London, and he's based out San Francisco, but I've been recently stalking him on LinkedIn, and uh, he, he was uh, so kind to answer immediately my message and accept invitation to this jam session. Um, I know we have an exceptional number of attendees today. Uh, Andy will take you and me behind the scenes and explain what the strategic narrative is and how to apply this to uh, your company eventually. Andy, a very warm welcome uh, to our Rock Content Jump session. I'm so glad you are here with us today. Thank you. Great to be here with you, Giuseppe. And uh, thank you for stalking me online. <laughs> you're stalking really basically. I think you're talking about liking a lot of my posts. It just really makes me feel good. Uh, thank you for the encouragement uh, over Correct. the years. It did work. Well, what we'll do today is uh, I will try to split questions in three main groups. Introduction, process, and the methodology of the narrative, and then some questions about the future. And time to time, I will go with the questions coming from the audience. So the topic of today is about building a strategic narrative for your company. Andy, I would like to start today by asking to tell us something about yourself for the audience who eventually still doesn't know who you are. Uh, how did you end up doing this kind of job? And I believe you started pitching some venture capitals, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so you've heard me tell that story. I guess I'll, I'll tell that story a little bit again, uh, folks haven't heard it. So I started out as a software developer. So I was a computer science undergrad. And after school, uh, I was working as a developer and a kind of management consultant. And a friend and I had, a, or a colleague and I had an idea for an app. And this was like uh, .com years. So this was a uh, Windows app. And so we made a prototype of it and we thought, hey, this could maybe be a business. And so uh, of the two of us, I spoke English uh, fluently. So we decided I should write the plan and for the pitch for investors. And so uh, we sent my pitch to a bunch of VCs and the reaction was really bad. And one of them wrote uh, back, listen, Andy, I rate every plan I get on a scale of one to 10, yours is a one. And then he wrote a parenthesis about worst in case we thought one might be the top of his uh, his rating system. 
But then he wrote uh, this other thing. He wrote uh, in the margin, he wrote, not a compelling story. And I didn't really pay much attention to that at first. But then a few weeks later, I was walking by this Barnes and Noble. This was in Manhattan where I live. And there was a sign on the window that said, for anyone who wants to tell a compelling story. And there was an arrow to these books that when I went inside, turned out to be screenwriting books. And so I read these books and, you know, they described a very different way of structuring a narrative than what I was, you know, I didn't think of myself as structuring a narrative when I was doing the pitch, but I said, okay, well, what if I try to do this? <laughs> and, you know, we, we redid it and, you know, looking back on it, it probably wasn't a greatest job, but it was, it was different enough that we, when we stepped out that we started getting a lot more interest. And uh, a few months later, we had a, we had a term sheet from some pretty good VCs and I'll skip a few steps, but I got kind of so into it that when, so that company was acquired and then I, I was thinking like, what do I want to do next? And I got so into this, I was so into this, this story thing. I actually wound up becoming a journalist for about five or six years at, uh, at Time Inc. at a magazine there called Business 2.0. And I guess it was really a combination of that experience as a CEO and a lot of experience, like, you know, at a business magazine, what are you trying to do? You're basically trying to make uh, companies and <laughs> their ideas, you know, you're trying to find the, the nugget that's, you know, going to be really interesting to people and, and grab attention. That combination eventually led me to kind of, I went back to tech and then CEOs started kind of hearing about that story and then recommending me to one another. And that kind of was how, how this kind of started happening for me. All right. Thank you, Andy. So you have this ability to get companies to tell a story today. Uh, you have this kind of superpower. Let's give some context to our audience. What exactly is a strategic narrative? Now, if I'm not mistaken, you have called it in, in some of your articles, the story in buyer's head. Can you please elaborate more on this concept? Yeah. So in general, I think of it as the story in any human's head that guides their actions. So, you know, if you think about it, you know, maybe not about like, what am I going to eat today? Although maybe even there too, but sort of in a, in a little bit longer time frame, you know, how I'm, how I'm going to behave and what, what I'm, what my goals are and all these things really have to do with a lot of stories in our heads about, you know, how one, I don't know, achieves happiness or success. And so I think each of us has a strategic narrative in our head for our own lives and maybe more than one, but, but then in the business context, you know, what every business is looking for, what every leader is looking for is to align everyone around a, a strategy. So if we can have that same narrative, that same strategic narrative be embraced by customers, employees, everybody, then it becomes this strategic narrative, not just for a person, but for the company and the whole and everyone that the company touches. Very clear. Thank you, Andy. Now, who are your typical customers? Who, who is your target audience? Who do you work with? So all of my engagements are led by CEOs. I really believe that in order for this, you know, if you really believe what Ben Horowitz of Andreessen and Horowitz says, which is that the story is the strategy, that we are looking for something that's uh, not just a kind of, not, not only marketing, not only product, not only uh, sales, but something that's really going to unify everything then who else can be the author of that but the CEO? That said, 
it can't just be the CEO. I think the leaders of, of marketing and sales and product have a lot on the line and a lot of emotion about what that story is going to be. And so when I work with teams, it's a kind of balance between me working one-on-one -on -one with the CEO most of the time and then having the leadership team give feedback and ideas for how to improve it as we go along. I'd say the companies I work with tend to be sort of middle to later stage B2B tech companies. So exceptions to this rule, but usually around like series B up through kind of, um, in some cases, some public companies, some brand name tech companies that you've heard of, uh, but always with that CEO as the, the main, my main contact and then leadership team as the support. What about large enterprises? You think they may need a similar approach or they... Oh yeah, so when, I mean, I guess it depends on what your what your definition is of, of large enterprise. You know, I, for me, the ones that the, some of the startup company, you know, startups that I work with are, you know, hundreds of millions in sales and that I consider that a large enterprise. So, not, uh, so far, that's been kind of my sweet spot. Um, I think there is the need for it at, at larger companies too, of course. There's very few CEOs once the company gets that big that, you know, when we're talking like a sales force. I think Mark Benioff is very unusual in that he, you know, every year for Dreamforce, he's working on the narrative, you know, updating it for that year. You know, usually it stays kind of similar for a few years. Sometimes it changes a little bit. You know, I just, I was contacted by, I won't say the company, but a very, very large uh, company where it was the head of uh, comms. And this person said, hey, I want help working on our narrative. I said, well, you know, my engagements are always led by the CEO. And this person said, well, I'm leading this, uh, not our CEO. I said, okay, well, then I'm not the right person for that. And I think, and nothing against her. Like that's just, I think once the organization gets very, very big, the CEO may not, may not want to sort of be authoring it at that, at that level. And I remember Salesforce when they started with the message like um, software is dead or something similar. And yeah, the end yeah. of software, exactly. Yes, yeah. that was exactly the narrative. And, and by the way, I, I interviewed him as a, one of my first assignments at Business 2.0 was to interview him. And he tells me this story and I'm thinking, wow, this is exactly the structure that I saw in the movie books that I, the film, the screenwriting books. And so, yeah, that was a big, uh, meeting him was a huge impetus for me doing this work eventually. All right. And yeah, I have now a very personal question based on what I see on LinkedIn. It looks like you are a Star Wars fan, um, particularly of the Mandalorian, right? Is it because it fits well with the narrative principles or any other reasons? Well, Mandalorian is mostly just because Baby Yoda is very cute. So, <laughs> That's true. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, Star Wars in general, I use that example because I'm, I'm always looking for Star Wars is the closest thing we have almost to like a, I don't know, like a legend that everybody knows. <laughs> so, you know, the, for a while I would experiment with different movies that I talk about and say, and, and you know, half the group didn't, hadn't seen it or whatever. And I even still, I, I usually try to use a few different examples if I'm talking about movies. But Star Wars does have some kind of archetypical story stuff and, and just a lot of people have seen it, so it's easy. Uh, Mandalorian, I also, I guess I feel some affinity in that. Uh, some of the stuff I say is a little bit, I don't know, I feel like kind of not the mainstream. 
view on things. And that's kind of Mandalorian feels a little bit like that too. He's kind of this, uh, you know, Ronin lone wolf soldier guy. I, I wouldn't say it's quite like that, but I do like the idea that he has this kind of code. And, and I feel that's, uh, sometimes it feels like that. I'm a fan too, by the way. This is the way. <laughs> this is the way. Do you like, but you almost like Baby Yoda, right? I mean, like. Exactly, yes. Yeah. All right, let's move to the second area of questions, which is the methodology. First of all, one comment. I can clearly see uh, the link, the affinity between uh, the classic Here Journey storytelling framework from Joseph Campbell. And for the audience, the book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces from Joseph Campbell, who's a professor of literature, basically unpacks his theory that all mythological narratives share the same basic structure. And this basic structure is the hero journey, which is a common narrative archetype that involves a hero which basically goes to an adventure, he learns a lesson, he wins a victory, and then he returns home transformed. Now, this is exactly what the methodology that you have designed is about, right? Uh, we have an hero, which is the customer. We have a mentor, which is uh, basically us, the company. Um, I think we have a victory as well, which is the, what you call the promised land. Um, am I right with this kind of affinity? Is it where your narrative methodology come from? Well, yeah, I mean, so yes, I've read that book and uh, I think anybody who's in any field that's close to this, you know, is impacted by his work. That said, you know, I, I think I found early on some challenges with applying that hero's journey directly. Um, one was just the, you know, it's a little fluffy. So when I would talk about it with leaders, you know, it just felt like it felt like it was more about making the story, ma making, you know, it wasn't really changing the structure. It was more like just making what I'm saying more approachable or likable. There was just something a little maybe pedantic about it. <laughs> like, hey, here's the structure of the you know, classic tales, and let's apply the classic tales to this. Yeah, but yes, of course, there is some stuff there. You know, there is a difference, though, when we talk about the strategic narrative, which, I, you know, is, is essentially the pitch. It's not the telling of, a, of an epic tale. It's not a three-act screenplay. You know, we're not learning the details of a character and, you know, in that literal way, right? So I found that I needed different ways to talk about it and that even some of the things that were in there were just unhelpful or didn't even apply. So this was the kind of journey for me was figuring out like what applies here and what doesn't. And um, I think for me, I found the screenwriting books more like they got to the point more for me than Hero's Journey stuff. Thank you, Andy. Someone is asking, what's the book I mentioned? The title is The Hero with a Thousand Faces of Joseph Campbell, which is basically the book that introduced this methodology. All right, so let's move forward. What's the process, Andy, and the format you go through? How do you find the story for your clients? Yeah, so, well, you, you referred to earlier about that post, uh, greatest sales deck I've ever seen. Yeah. And, you know, what I think was really surprising to me was, I mean, people saw through the headline of that, that it, it wasn't just about a sales deck, it was about this narrative that is kind of embodied in the sales deck. One of the questions we have when we're talking about strategic narrative, this one story that's gonna be, you know, the story we're all telling, 
where do we write that down and what format do we write that down? Like, what is the instrument through which we're going to capture this story? And the traditional answer to this, even if people are not using kind of narrative form, but the traditional answer to, you know, what's the, the language that's going to unify us all is we're going to put it in a place that the world doesn't see. So we're going to have, I don't know, make this positioning. We're going to fill out some kind of positioning template or positioning statement. These aren't things we're going to share directly with customers, but the idea is it's going to be a kind of DNA for things we do share with them. So it's going to guide us in what we actually do create. Sometimes it's called like a messaging house or it's called the, um, or it's mission and vision statement that's in, and our values and some kind of internal thing. There's nothing wrong with doing all those things. But what I found was in my career was, uh, cause I, I, I held, I worked in a lot of tech startups before journalists and also after was that people wouldn't go back. Like you, we, make this positioning thing or this high level sort of this outline of the story or uh, whatever. And the idea was, you know, people would go back when they're going to build a sales deck or a website or whatever. And I found people didn't go back. <laughs> partly they forget, I think, partly um, often it would be marketing who would own it. And so it was sort of like in the marketing department and they'd have to become kind of a cop to get everyone else to do it. Um, in some cases also a lot, I mean, it's hard enough for like a professional writer to like build something based on a, on an outline and, and bullet points. I think it was, it's hard for people, even if they did go back to actually, you know, use it as a useful guide often. So I thought really hard, like, what is the thing we should use for this? And I, I came to the sales deck, you know, I'm working mostly with B2B company or exclusively with B2B companies. And so, you know, this, I came to really feel like the sales presentation, it is the core narrative. Investors, like even if, you know, when you pitch investors, who's the first call they want to make? They're going to call customers to see like, why are you buying this? You know, for their due diligence calls. So the, the sales narrative is really the core narrative of the investor deck. Of course, there's other things in the investor deck that are need. Um, it's really the core narrative of like, why would you want to join this company for recruiting? It's really the core narrative of like, what product we're building, right? And forces a kind of discipline because if that narrative can't connect really quickly to what we're really selling and position it in a way that, you know, is going to be uh, kind of drive urgency and create differentiation in a conversation, then that story is not really that valuable. <laughs> so it's a kind of forcing function to make sure that it really does connect uh, to everything else. So when I work with teams, this is unusual, right? Like I'm asking the CEO to essentially write the sales deck with the help of the leadership team. Of course, this usually includes the head of marketing and sales and, and we're, you know, we're eventually bringing in other groups and, and all this stuff, right? But that's almost backwards from usually it's like the CEO and the leadership team are going to create some kind of high level language. And then it's like passed off to uh, someone else to, to do the implementation of what customers will really see. And I'm saying, let's start there. And prospects, I imagine, are the very first test of the narrative at this point. Well, first, yes, it's a first test of the narrative is prospects. And well, I mean, in some cases, investors, if the company is at that stage where they're doing another round, sometimes it's that. Although, like I said, we're going to be taking pieces of that sales narrative and bring to the sales deck, to the uh, investor deck. But uh, also, we want to have customer input. I find sometimes... Customers are not a great test of the narrative because they're already kind of contaminated. Like 
but they are good inputs to it. Like why did, you know, not necessarily like what do they love about your company and what do they hate about their company, your company, but what is changing in their lives such that what your company is delivering is, is so much more valuable now than it would have been in the past. I wrote a post, by the way, about the questions I like teams to ask to customers as inputs to our narrative building. And this is really, I think, the biggest one, which is uh, this getting them to talk about how they see the world changing. Because what is a narrative? It's about the world changing. This is the core of it. And so sometimes they'll literally give us the words in these customer conversations. By the way, I always ask, I don't want notes on these conversations. I want the actual transcript. And you know, now we have a lot of tools that, that will do this very quickly and, and pretty well. Um, really see the words they're using. And then as a team, look at those. And sometimes they'll literally use those words. And in every case, I find they'll, they'll give us some direction on where to go. Um, Andy, you mentioned that uh, the majority, if not all of your customers are B2B. Is it because we B2B marketers are less creative maybe or the B2C guys and we lack uh, narrative capabilities or it's, there is a, a different reason behind? I don't think that um, <laughs> people are less creative or anything like that. I, I don't, or I think for me, that was my experience. Like B2B companies was my experience in the companies I was part of. So it was natural for me. I think that a lot of the same things really do apply to B2C companies, but especially teams with very large sales forces, there's this awakening, I think, of the CEO and, and it happens at different stages for different companies. But it's awakening that, hey, if we could have everybody telling the same story, like this would improve our ROI of all our investments in product, marketing, sales, recruiting, everything, right? But it's that large sales force, I think, especially creates a kind of instant win on it that I think has been maybe what led B2B folks to kind of gravitate, B2B CEOs gravitate to me. All right. Thank you, Andy. Let's focus now on the framework you use. Uh, can you please explain the approach which starts with what you call the undeniable shift in the world? We want to get us through the five steps and then we go back to other questions. Okay. So I've evolved it over the years. So I'm going to, I'll tell you kind of where I'm standing. Yeah. So it starts with this shift. And actually, I used to say undeniable. I actually don't like that anymore because I think the really great shifts, like a lot of people don't agree with them. <laughs> you know, if you think about the end of software, that's very controversial. A lot of people could, not, could have denied it, well, did deny it at the time. Even people who understood it, he was talking about, you know, software in terms of a thing you owned and maintained. So now I like to think about this shift. I, I, I still say, like, start with this naming this shift. But what I like to say is name the old game and the new game. So there was an old game in Benioff's case, software, <laughs> that you played to win. And that was a great winning game. And he's coming along and he's saying, hey, that game, that's suddenly the wrong game. And you got to wake up to that. And this, and he's saying, hey, there's a new game called cloud or you know, get your software through the cloud. And that's the game we're going to help you play. And he's making this very clear distinction and naming them. I mean, the one of the things I see people do is they'll say, hey, world used to be like this. Now it's like this. And, and each of those will be like 15 points or lots of different things. The world has changed. That is not what we're looking for. We're looking for a very specific name of old game, new game. Uh, yeah, I wrote a post about this a few years ago where I introduced that old game, new game 
framework, uh, really as a way to help people name this change in the world. I found that it helped. How do you find the new game when it's not really apparent, when it's not visible? What kind of questions do you ask to the CEO or eventually the executive team to explore the new game? Well, what we're looking for is, you know, they're, ideally the product is, is ideally suited to playing this new game. And it's suited to it in a way that's differentiating. So often I'll ask like, what's our differentiators? And they'll give me, you know, features or this kind of thing. And then we have to translate that to, well, what is the game those features let us play? let the buyers play. That's different if you don't have those. And then we kind of back it out. The other thing that's helpful, like I said, is talking to customers and getting them talking about what's the shift. Another big question I ask them is, how has your definition of winning changed? I'm in the middle of working with a team. We just got to where it started to feeling good, starting to feel good. And the big insight came from this thing we saw over and over about one thing for privacy or confidentiality, I won't say what it is, but this one thing that all the customers were saying, hey, it used to be I, I was doing this and now I'm doing this. And it all came right out of that. Right. What happens after the old game, new game phase? What are the, the other phases? So the next one is what I call naming the stakes. One of the biggest requests I get or, or things I hear when CEOs contact me is, hey, we've got this great stuff. The world doesn't realize how great it is. Like our competitors are saying similar things. We need to drive urgency for our stuff. And what is the typical way we drive urgency, the traditional way? You know, the traditional way is we call this probing for pain, right? We're going to try and find a pain somewhere. But most buyers, I think, are not in pain. <laughs> most buyers are kind of okay, <laughs> And yeah, they have some ups and downs, but, and they think the world is always going to be okay. And from behavioral economic theory, you know, we know that the, what makes people move, make a decision, do something is stakes that there's going to be upside, you know, upside that's desirable and a downside that is undesirable. And somehow the, these, we have to paint the future of this. So what we're really saying is instead of, you know, pain, we're talking about, driving urgency through stakes. And what this means concretely is, can we show that winners are already playing the new game? You know, a great example, I'll just go to uh, Benioff. I don't remember it exactly, but I'm sure he could have found like, hey, look at some of the already hot companies. Look, they're delivering their services through a web browser, not by sending you a package of software. Uh, this is already happening. You know, in a way, I remember feeling like, you know, in the company that I started, we, we did our services through a web browser. And I remember when I went to Benioff to interview him and he's talking about the end of software cloud, I was like, oh, this is kind of ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we were doing that a few years ago, but what he did is he named it and that made all the difference. So to create stakes, we want to show, hey, there's winners or, or you know, if you want to win, you got to play this new game. And here's why the old game is a road to ruin. So we're really painting the stakes of, if possible, life and death. And this really does come from movies. Think about, well, let's go to Star Wars, that example that, that most people know. If they don't, I mean, it's been 40 years, at least for the first, since the first one. So probably you would have seen it already. So okay for some minor spoilers, but in a way, Luke is being presented with a new game, right? So his old, you know, when we meet him, he's playing this complaining teenager. Have you seen the movie, Giuseppe? Yeah, I've seen all uh, of them. Okay, good, good. He's playing this kind of complaining teenager game. 
you know, I only care, he pretty much cares about himself. He wants to be a pilot, all this stuff. He's presented with by, by Obi-Wan with this new game, hey, let's, which is essentially, if you think about it, like care about other people. <laughs> it's adventure and all the rest of this yeah. stuff, right? And, you know, what does Luke say at first? He says, hmm. No, thank you. No, thank you. I, I got, it's really late. I got to go home. That sounds dangerous. Who does this sound like? It sounds like the reluctant buyer. Yes, I want to be, you know, we want to be super innovative this year. And, ooh, yeah, I don't think we have budget for that. You know, so in the same way, you know, in the movie, how are stakes created? Well, his aunt and uncle are killed. And now it's clear, like, probably he's going to be dead because he's this bratty kid. But now, you know, there's this other upside, this new, you know, where winners like Obi-Wan are playing this other game and, and there's this other potential road for happiness. So it's really setting up this uh, avoidance of potential loss and, you know, huge uh, potential gain. And this gets him engaged. And same thing in the, the strategic narrative. So this basically puts in front of the prospect visible reason why they are supposed to adopt the change without necessarily putting them in the fence saying, hey, you have a problem. So that's the beauty of, uh, of this approach. And then what happens after we name the stakes? What are the next steps? Yeah. So once the stakes are named, then one piece is, you know, what's the object of this game? <laughs> so, you know, it's one thing to say, like, um, like as Wara says, hey, we're in a subscription economy. And what does that mean for every game has a goal state that is a kind of organizing effect on everything you do? I said earlier, a strategic narrative drives everything you do. And, and part of its driving is, it, is that strategic narrative implies some kind of goal state, even if it's a kind of infinite game where it's a goal state that's not literally achieved. It's a, it's a kind of driving asymptotic limit thing we want to get to. And it's often important to do this because we often have formats like, for instance, the top of the website, where it may be difficult to go through the whole old game, new game thing. Yeah. And just being very clear about the goal state can kind of imply it and set the stage for, you know, explaining the rest of the story when you have more format, more space and time. So, for example, the headline on Zwar's website for a while was, and by the way, this, this object of the game, I think, often does work very well as that top line of the website, turn customers into subscribers. So this is the kind of goal state of the new game of the subscription economy. It's an organizing principle for everything that everyone does at the company and everything customers do. This is the great unifying thing. Like once we have that object of the game for the buyer, for the beneficiary of our service, then everything gets aligned to that. Like, what is the mission of the company? It's just getting them to that goal state. What is product? It's building stuff to help them get to, you know, everything gets aligned to that one thing. And this brings me to another question that I get asked so many times. How do you align the story with the company vision and mission statements? Mm. Yeah, funny. I got this question. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, I got this question just the other day, too. So, we get involved now in, in kind of definitions and what is a mission statement, what is a vision statement, and how these things are typically used. Uh, so it's tricky territory to talk about, but I'll do the best I can. I see the strategic narrative as replacing the mission and vision. The mission and vision statement, I mean, people have different 
takes on it. But I think the, the take I hear most common is mission is some kind of short-term or medium-term goal and vision is a right. kind of long-term goal for the company. And one thing is that's very self-centered. <laughs> so, you know, we it want is. to that we're going to do this, we're going to do, right? So even if it's language that includes the customer, we're going to help customers do this. We're going to, it's a little bit um, self-centered. So it's usually also a very internal exercise. Internal exercise, yes. And not connected necessarily to, to talking about product as, as it would be in a sales deck, right? And so being self-centered also means, well, like exactly what you said, it's, it's internal. So it means your external talk is going to be different from your internal talk. So you've got already this setup for being kind of schizophrenic where I have to remember, oh, am I talking, you know, inside we have a different story from outside. The other thing about them is, you know, this, this idea of long and short term goals, I think often winds up being really nebulous. So it's like, okay, this is the short term goal and there's a long term goal, but they sound kind of the same or they, you know, if you need a short term goal for like your product team, make a short-term goal, but that doesn't have to be called the mission of the company or, you know, or it could be a short-term goal for the company. That's fine. But it doesn't have that aligning effect that the strategic narrative has. Um, I think the last piece about the traditional mission and vision is they're not narrative in form. So as we said, like the, the starting point for strategic narrative is the shift in the world. And most of the vision and mission statements are, we want to do this, <laughs> which is not about a, well, I guess it's, we want to change the world in this way. But again, it's like, it's not the world has changed. It's not our point of view about how the world has changed. It's our kind of statement of how great we're going to be and the great thing we're going to do. So I really see, I mean, if there's a correlation at all, I do, the way I like to think about it is this shift in the world is the vision. It's not the vision in terms of a, a goal, but it's an articulation of how we see the world has changed forever. And meaning like this is our take on, on the future. We want to say it already changed now because that drives the urgency. We say, hey, we think it's going to change. We know you. it's going to change. It's the end of software is coming in five years. Well, that doesn't create a lot of urgency for me to buy today. So we have to say it, call it early. And then this buyer mission statement, this uh, object of the game becomes what I call the buyer mission statement which is, isn't that the mission? Um, you know, if we can just name that, you know, turning customers into subscribers is the goal state for the buyer. Well, then isn't everything that the company does, you know, aligned to that. So I hope it's not too confusing. It's often... Uh, no, it, it is uh, very clear. And actually, I think, Andy, this is the way narrative pretty well embed mission and vision statements probably help also clarifying what the two concepts are. Um, another thing that is very interesting for me is uh, a new categories, new category creation. I remember it was, I think, one of your articles where you basically say that the framework can facilitate in some way category creation or it's linked to category creation. Can you elaborate a little bit more on this? You know, again, we have some definitions about what a category is and this stuff that, that are really dangerous territory to, to, to muck around in. But that new game essentially is the category. I mean, it, it's, or, or it's, it's kind of very much setting it up. You know, think about Zawara subscription economy, you know, is the, the new game. And, you know, what's their category? I guess it's subscription billing software. So there was a category called billing software. And 
maybe you call it a subcategory they created called, you know, I don't know if you want to call it, I guess that's up to Gartner, however, or Forrester, or whatever they want to do, right? But in terms of the mind of people, I think there is this other thing, which is subscription billing and subscription, you know, uh, running that business model. So, yes, I think the strategic narrative is very much category defining, for sure. Andy, I'm starting to jump to some of the questions coming from the audience. Uh, Tony is asking, is there a villain, an enemy required for a good strategic narrative? If so, can you give an example of one you have used? Yeah, so, you know, the enemy, the traditional way to look at the enemy is that it's the problem. Yep. And, you know, I guess that's one way to look at it. The way I look at it is the enemy is the old game. So it's really the thinking that we can keep going this way. So it's more the prospect mindset. It's the it's a mindset. You, know, you think about Star Wars. You know, on one level, what's the enemy? It's this guy in the black cape who's breathing heavily. But in a, in a bigger sense, the enemy is is the story in Luke's head that I can still be this complaining teenager. And Darth Vader is like a plot device for setting off that battle. And that's where the real battle happens. And I think the same thing is happening here. So one example, great example, Gong. Their narrative is expressed very, very clearly. Goodbye opinions, hello reality. So what is the villain? The villain is the belief, the mindset that we can basically get by on hunches and guesses rather than you know really uh, seeing what's really happening. And they are very good in communicating this message across all the channels, by the way. Okay, let's go with some other questions. Um, now, storytelling is a typical tactic to sustain brand building and uh, as such, it's very hard to measure. How do you measure the impact of a good story, of a good strategic narrative? So I'm focused on just this one story of the that the high level, you know, the company is telling everywhere. How do you measure that? You know, no way to definitively measure it all, but I'll tell you a few ways that I've heard folks do it. So one thing is uh, sales. So like I said, you know, these are B2B companies and one of the first places they're looking to have an impact obviously is, is in sales conversations. Uh, one CEO that I work with, um, this is uh, Andy Wilson at Logical. They have a platform for uh, doing the discovery phase of legal proceedings in a really super fast way. And Andy would track the time it took for a rep to close a first deal from when they joined the company, when they joined Logical as a new, new rep to when they closed their first deal. And once they started using the new narrative, it, it, he found that it, it got slashed in half. Um, other kinds of like sales cycle duration things I've found is a really, has been a really interesting measure of, you know, how quickly are people getting it and, you know, kind of moving on to buying. But in the end, I think it would not be authentic to say that, you know, that people are using these hard and fast measures to decide whether this is working or not. I think the biggest one, I hear this over and over from CEOs is, am I getting the nods? Meaning, am I getting people, even before I talk about the product, <laughs> like when I'm talking about the shift in the world and the stakes and the object of the new game, you know, none of that is about our product yet. None, it's not even about us. 
are we getting the people say, yes, you're telling my story? Um, this is the, if you know this book, um, Never Split the Difference by Christopher Voss, the negotiation book. So he was this lead hostage negotiator for the FBI. And he does a kind of gong-like analysis on his negotiation transcripts. And he finds that there's this pattern where, you know, this crazy person who wants ton, millions of dollars or else is going to do something horrible, you know, actually winds up doing a deal once the negotiator says the captor's story back to them and the captor says back eventually, that's right. That simple, hey, you're telling my story establishes the trust. And so uh, that's really what we're looking for. And, and these work both internally and externally, by the way, with prospects, but also with internal stakeholders. Um, absolutely. One question I get asked many times is about audiences. Do you create variations of the main narrative uh, for different audiences, or you suggest to go with just one company storyline? Yeah, this is a great question, right? How do we get one story to work for all the different personas? Yeah. And what I often do in the main narrative, even in that you know sales deck that will show everyone, is we'll include one slide that essentially says, this changes the game for everyone. So this shift in the world, and this came from studying Zora. Um, I wrote a post about this, by the way, too. It's called uh, Tailoring Your Pitch for Multiple Audiences. You know, the dilemma we have is if we give a separate story to each persona, then we're kind of schizophrenic and we can't really tell the story until we know who we're talking to. So there's, there really is this need for something high level that's gonna bring them all together. And also what if we're talking to multiple personas you know, in the same room, which can happen often. So the way I think about it is, if you look at Zwara, they, everything they do starts with, we are now in a subscription economy, that, that shift in the world. Then if they know they're talking to specific audiences, what they then go to next is, well, here's how this changes the game for you, product manager. Here's how the game, it changes the game for you, CIO. And they'll have a custom kind of from to what your job was in the old game, what your role was, what your role is in the new game. So I'm, I'm not going to remember it exactly, but I think for the product owner, it was like, you know, used to be you like managing specs in a backlog. Now your job is, you know, creating always on relationships. <laughs> and this allows them to kind of have one big story and then a bunch of others that kind of tie to it. Uh, Tian Tuo, the CEO of Zora on my podcast, told me that he actually invited in um, showrunners from some Hollywood TV shows where they... <laughs> They would talk about how they had, you know, the main showrunner, the main story writers for the, the main character. And then they have like a, a person would have the story, the, the sub story for some of the sub, you know, minor characters would kind of be responsible for them. And so he wound up, I think, doing something similar where you have, you know, the, the big story is this. But then, OK, what does that story mean for this persona? And then we yes, we craft one. And I think there's ways even in the main narrative overall narrative to give a kind of direction for what those stories should be so that we can talk to multiple audiences with that one story. Very clear. Thank you, Andy. Um, and now we at Rock Content, we help marketers designing content experiences and the jam session video interviews are a 
about content and content experiences. My next question is about content. How do these two elements, content and strategic narrative, play within each other? Well, you know, there's this uh, term content strategy, which can mean a lot of different things. But one of the things I think it means is that the content is somehow aligned to the strategy of the company and promoting it and, and all the rest. It, it, it means lots of other things. Uh, but one of the ways that I, I like to take it is that. And I think the teams that have very strong strategic narratives, that becomes the, the story that all the content is telling. So one example of this, a really interesting one, I think, is a VC firm called OpenView Ventures in Boston. So OpenView, in a way, like has created a category of VC or, or a subcategory where they're always talking about what they call product-led growth. So this idea that whether it's, I guess, free trial or sort of easy to take early or free or, or cheaper versions, that can you know get embedded in an organization and then you start upselling from there. They turn this kind of into their rallying cry. And then now when you see their content, probably not all of it, like not 100%, but I don't know, for a while, I think it was probably like 80 or so percent, is like, how does product-led growth change the game for CIOs? What are all the teams doing product? What are all the success stories of product-led growth? Um, how is this company that's having an IPO all about product-led growth? You know, the content is all driven by this one story. You know, so in their case, it's, hey, it used to be you'd sell, I'm going to paraphrase, it used to be you sell, sold high up. Now it's all about the user. You know, the, the user is king. And it's all about that shift of user is king and how that then has ripple effects in the world. And what they're writing about is usually all, all about this stuff. And often it's not even about them. It's not about, you know, open view portfolio companies necessarily. It's about, hey, here's how this is playing out in the world. Zwara did the same thing. All their content is about subscription. You see early on, they're doing articles about, you know, Uber and how that's based, you know, they're considering that a subscription business in a kind of in a broad sense. Uber, I don't think was a was a customer. I'm pretty sure it was not a customer of theirs. They're talking about the winners, right? So that one narrative becomes the guiding force for everything. All right, thank you, Andy. Uh, Nia is asking, what if the CEO is new? and he doesn't know the company pretty well or the industry, are you going to have an issue getting the right narrative from him? This is a great question. And so it's a very timely because lately, I'd say in like the last six months, there's been this uh, pattern where a lot of new CEOs have engaged me where they're coming into fairly large companies and they're seeing the definition of the strategic narrative as kind of the definition of their leadership of their setting of you know, what might be traditionally called mission vision, but doing it in this way of setting this up. And what I found is, you know, they didn't come into the company like not knowing anything. <laughs> you know, they did their due diligence about it. They have spoken to a lot of people. In many cases, they do know the industry. And so in my experience, they have a point of view. They've all had a point of view, a very strong one, in fact, about where this narrative has to go. They need help kind of, you know, some guidance, clarifying it sometimes. And then, like I said, my process is, if I've gotten better at this, it's basically been by figuring out ways to balance that CEO authorship with real input from the team. 
in a lot of these situations I'm talking about, we have a couple of them. The old CEO was the founder and is still there. So the CEO has been part of bringing this new person on, but is still playing a big role. And that person often has a lot of power because the, the organization looks up to them and a lot of, you know, invested in kind of old ways of thinking about the company. At the same time, that person has a lot of information, a lot of really great stuff about where the, the fertile territory is for this thing. And so, um, you know, I've just found like it's been a really interesting and fruitful uh, experience to, to see this new CEO come in with this point of view and have the old guard kind of adjust it a little bit and have them kind of reach a place where they're both feeling good. All right. Thank you, Andy. I think we have only a couple of minutes, so we'll go with the final question. Uh, what are your next steps? Is there anything you are planning and you want to share with your followers or our audience? My next steps? Yeah. So, well, first of all, I released a podcast, I think I may have mentioned it earlier, and did the first season of it last year. It's called The Bigger Narrative. And each episode is a CEO who I have either worked with, most of them I've worked with, some I've, I've written about and just got to know that way. And it's all about how the strategic narrative has played a role in their leadership. And really, we've talked about a lot of the questions you're talking about here, but in sort of specific context of those companies. Each episode is introduced by my mother, by the way, who people seem to like. And I'm, so I'm going to do another season of that, uh, I think, probably in the next few months. I'm also working on a book uh, about all this stuff. So that's coming soon, too. Well, please let us know as soon as the book will be released. Um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to follow up or maybe they want to work with you? Easiest way is uh, LinkedIn. You can just uh, reach out and, try and connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's where I'm always posting sort of my uh, whatever I learned <laughs> literally like that day. Uh, like I, I posted something about this mission vision thing a few days ago. So some of those thoughts were fresh in my head. And also my website is andyraskin.com. So either way, those are, those are good places to start. Wonderful. Thank you. Andy, thank you so much. It was a really fascinating conversation. Thank you for finding the time to be with us and share your insights. And to everyone on the line, thank you for being with us with this new episode of our Jam Sessions. Please stay tuned for our next interview, which will be at the end of February, correct? Yes. And the new guest will be Marcus Andrews from Pendo, coming from HubSpot. He will be presenting narrative design, how product marketers can tell a story people can ignore, uh, certainly not to be missed. So, so we're still keeping the strategic narrative, the narrative design as a main theme. We will move toward the product marketing field. Uh, thank you, Andy. I truly hope to see you soon in person. And thank you all participants. Have a great day and a great rest of the week. Okay. You, great talk with you, Giuseppe. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Rock Content's Jam Session podcast series. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to receive our latest episodes. We'll see you next week.